The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, we've been looking through this Advent season of songs and of singing these songs of Mary who came and was absolutely amazed in the presence of God of what was going to transpire. And she responded by basically saying, I'm the Lord's servant. And she recognized how God had visited her and the honor with which he had bestowed upon her and that this child that she was going to bear was going to be the very Messiah that she needed in order for her own life. What an amazing reality uh, for this young girl. And that she wrestled with it and owned it and, and believed it to be true. And then we came and walked into the temple with Simeon who had been waiting all of those years faithfully and he'd seen pretend uh, pseudo-messiahs come and go, but he saw this peasant couple bringing their child, and he held Jesus in his hands, and he said, this is it. Now I can go and be at peace because I have seen my salvation, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies, the fulfillment of what every Jew has been looking for, and every Jew today is still looking for, is the coming of that Messiah, and he came. And Simeon said, and I've, I've held him, and I know that he's here. And then we talked last week about the angels who were singing, and they proclaimed the glory of this king who had entered into the world. And they weren't going to allow him to simply come in unannounced. There was no way that they were going to allow the Son of God, the one whom they had known uh, for all time, even before time, that he was going to enter into the world. And they were amazed. It said that they stared into the gospel. They were captivated by the truth of the gospel. And they were seeing it now being played out in front of them. And they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth shalom, peace to men. That what was happening was God was now going to make peace with all of humanity, with his children, through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. And now the question this week uh, would be, how do we respond to that? And so we're going to look this week at a different song. It's not the song of a particular person, per se, but it's the song of a collective. And it's the song of the redeemed. It's the song of those who have come, and like Mary, and like Simeon, and like the angels, like the shepherds and all the others, when they've come and encountered this Christ, it, it elicits within them a response. And so how would they respond? How is it they would sing? And in looking through the scriptures, I found probably the best place to go would be into Revelation, of taking that picture and glimpse uh, into the cosmic nature. Last Christmas season in Advent, we looked at a cosmic Christmas, and I'm reminded of that on our Christmas tree for those of you who are new, this isn't going to make sense, but on our Christmas tree, we've got uh, this little red dragon uh, hanging on our Christmas tree to remind us that the dragon wanted to consume the child, but that the child made it, and he conquered the dragon. And so what we celebrate at, Christ, uh, at Christmas is Christ's victory uh, over all sin and death, over all evil. And so in Revelation 5, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there, and there's a song that is being sung being sung over and over, and the picture is within the throne room of heaven. And included in this 
uh, are those who have been redeemed, are the angels, are the elders, uh, are, are representatives of the body of Christ, of all the church throughout all the ages, and they're all coming together, and they're asking huge and profound questions, and they're wrestling with the answers, and they find the answer in Christ himself, and they spontaneously, they just sort of combust with singing. So here it is, coming from Revelation chapter 5. This is John, the apostle, writing. He said, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that is God himself, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down, and worshipped. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Sometimes when you get into a passage like that, you get caught with all the uh, really interesting illusions and pictures and illustrations. You go, ooh, who are the 24 uh, elders uh, that are there? Oh, what's, what's the bowls? And what, what's this? And, and those are important things. And it's most likely that the 24 elders were the 12 apostles and representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that the others gathered around and they have meaning and significance. But I don't want you to miss the central story. In the middle of all of this. And the central story and the central point in the middle of this and at the very heart of the song that is being sung in heaven even now is a song that says worthy is Christ. Worthy is Christ because he changes everything. Here's the premise for today's sermon. Here's the baseline upon which I'm going to build everything else. Jesus Christ changes everything. You cannot understand the world 
fully without understanding who he is. You cannot deal with your own life. You cannot get a a picture of your own life. You can't even begin to know uh, the day from the tomorrow, uh, from looking in the future without coming and dealing with Jesus Christ. Because when he enters onto the scene, he says, I change everything. You have to deal with me. And we said for some people, they deal with him by dimming the light. It says that the light entered into the world, and we realize that light's too bright. I don't want the full light. I want just a little bit of light. And I talk with people regularly who want just enough of Jesus in their minds to get them through, to make them feel better, to help them sleep at night, and to hopefully give them the assurance of heaven. But they don't want so much of him that he's actually going to invade and and mess with any part of their daily life. You wrestle with that, don't you? Hey, Jesus, I want you and I need you, but I still want to be able to date who I want to date, uh, do what I want to do, live how I want to live, operate my business as I want to operate my business, uh, go about doing whatever it is that I'm going to do. I want to be able to do all that on my own, but I sure like you to hang out over here until I really need you. When crisis comes, then I'll jump back in and I'll come over and say, hey, come in and shine your light into this and help me understand the problem. But in the meantime, would you just be enough? So that I don't stub my toe too much as I get up in the evening and try to make my way through the house. That's how we view him. That's not how he's viewed in heaven. In heaven, he's viewed this way. He's a game changer. Everything pivots on him. Everything turns on its head with him. He's the only way to understand everything of history and of the future. And he is the only one who is worthy of our praise. He's the only one who's worthy uh, of giving a life to. He's the only one who's worthy of us coming and falling down on our knees and saying, praise be to you. And so we're going to look today at a couple of things. And the first thing is that this birth of Jesus Christ and his life, his advent into the world, changes everything. So first we have to ask the question, what exactly is it that he changes? What exactly is it that he changes? We could hide behind the everything, but we get a little more specific in verse 1 when John writes and he sees and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And so again, get the picture and the image in your mind. John, who was taken up in this vision into heaven itself, and he's there. And at first, he, it says that he falls down and flops on the ground like a fish. He goes, I, I can't do this. I, I don't know an awful lot. I'm not necessarily a fully learned man, but I know this. No one sees God and lives. And the angels bring him up and say, you're going to be fine. And he looks into the throne room. And it says that he sees one seated on the throne. Well, who is that? Well, it's God the Father himself who's seated on the throne. And so he sees God in some way. And what he understands about God is he sees held in his right hand, that hand of strength and authority, a hand that is powerful and strong, a scroll. And on the scroll is written front and back with no spaces. It's written fully over and it has seven seals and he's holding it. And there's something about this scroll that everybody's a flitter about. Everybody's all worried. No one can open the seals. No one can open the scroll. What's going to happen about this scroll? So you can imagine for John, he's going, what's up with this scroll? What's so important about this scroll? What's so so precious about it? Or why are you so upset about the scroll? And then in chapter 6, he's explained what it is. He says, then I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Come. 
And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. It was like he was caught up. He saw the seal opened and then all of a sudden uh, uh, as if a movie opened up in front of him and he understood what the seal was all about. And it was taking place and a rider on a white horse came out and he was doing something. And then he said, oh, and the second seal was opened and I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Verses 1 and 2 probably represent the advance of the gospel, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Verses 3 and 4 signify how in the days leading up to the end of the world, there's going to be distress and wars and rumors of war. And the rest of them in the opening of the third and fourth seals points to famine and other judgments, and so on and so on. And so this, this scroll and the seals that are on it are the future. The future life of all of the world. And it's being held in the hand of God. And it's fully written upon. It's described in such a way that say there's no space. Uh, there's nothing more to be added to it. it. It is done. God has already ordained. He has already set these things. And it's there. And it's in his hand. And so we're looking and going, okay, therefore, Jesus has something to do with this future. Jesus has something to do that he is worthy. And everybody begins to burst out in song later on because he shows up on the scene and he'd be, he's able to take this scroll from God and open it seal by seal and interpret it and make it come to pass. And that's a good thing, evidently. And so the first thing that we see that what he changes, what Jesus changes is our very life, our future, our present, our past, everything that we have. It's understood only by Christ. That that's his role. That he's that significant of a player uh, in the world. That he, uh, he has a way of engaging the future. So then you would have to ask the next question. Well, why is only Jesus the one? There seems to be a lot of cool stuff happening. There's all kinds of, of myriads of angels and of created things and of all kinds of stuff happening. What is it about Jesus that says he's the only one uh, who can do this? And we see there in verse 2, and it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. You see, the angels and the elders, they knew something. They knew something that we didn't know. They knew that there was no one else uniquely qualified, designed, living, who could accomplish the task of opening those seals. And they knew something else. They knew that if God the Father opened that scroll, if he opened those seals without a mediator, without a go-between, if he opened up your future, and for you to deal with him directly without a mediator, there would be only loss. There'd be only judgment. There'd be only death because God would have to deal directly with you one-to-one -one, with all your stuff. I used to like it in my home that when dad came home, and my father was a pastor and he had a big voice, 
And he had that kind of voice that could enter into a house, take a right turn, head up the stairs, somehow turn at the top of the stairs, head towards my door, somehow unlock the door, come through the door, and land somewhere down in the small of my neck. And it sort of went like this. Billy? Oh, no. (laughs) And then I'd hear my mom's voice. My dad was Bill. I was Billy growing up. And it would be something like this. Bill, what's wrong? Did you see Billy's report card today? Did you hear what he did at school? I heard from somebody in the church about what this boy is doing out there uh, in our town. Do you believe what he's doing? And my mom would go, let's talk about it for just a moment, honey. She would play mediator. She would play go-between. And by the time dad got to me, most times, he had calmed down. He didn't have belt in hand anymore. It was nearby, and it was probably going to get used, but at least it wasn't wailing in his hand at the present moment. But she had an incredibly important role in our home. She was the go-between. She was the mediator between dad and kids. My father wasn't a violent man, and he wasn't a bad man, but he was the authority. He was the leader of that house. And as a child, we really liked having mom around. Our poor dog and cats that just disappeared to uh, the Humane Society, they didn't have a go-between. Dad would deal with them on his own. And they would go find new homes regularly in our lives. And, uh, but us kids, we figured that was probably going to be our future uh, if uh, we didn't have a go-between. And so it's good to have a go-between. If it's that way in human relationships, can you imagine what it's like between a God who created all things perfectly and in his creation, mankind determined on their own that they didn't want him or need him and were going to do it on their own. And they were going to come to him and going to say to him, you may have pledged your fidelity to us, but we are going to play the harlot. We are going to go and be with anybody and any other God that we want to be with right smack dab in front of you. And we are going to flip you off, proverbially speaking and cosmically speaking. And we're going to tell you that we don't want you. And we're going to move about our life. Thank you very much. Oh, but by the way, would you still bless me? Would you still Uh, do good things for me? Would you still take care of me? And would you still let me into heaven? You can imagine a holy and indignant heavenly father saying, I'll open up the seals of your history and I promise you, you won't like it. You won't like it unless someone opens them instead. Unless there's somebody else, unless there is a mediator, unless there is a go-between, unless there is one who is willing to take that scroll out of his father's hand and say, Father, all of the wrath, all of the judgment, everything that is destined for this creation, I will take on myself so that when I open this scroll, here is what they will see. They will see the beauty of heaven. They will see a wedding feast. They will see a new Jerusalem coming down in all of its beauty and excellence. They will see redemption from sins and forgiveness. They will see justice poured out on me so that mercy could be poured out on them. You see, the elders knew that. 
They knew that Jesus was the only one uniquely qualified to go to the Father and say, I'll take that scroll out of your hand. Can you imagine trying to wrestle that scroll from the Father's hand? And Jesus said, Father, I'll take it. And John got a glimpse of it. Because what he recognized was that Jesus changes everything about the future. He is such a unique and necessary uh, figure in history that he is the one who interprets all of the future for us. And because of what he did, that we who believe in him can look and be thankful that the scroll's opened and not fearful of it. That we know that we don't have to open it on our own or deal with the consequences of it on our own. And John realized the gravity of the situation when he looked and it says that they found no one in heaven on earth who could open it. And look at John's response. John's response in verse 4 was very simple. They looked around all of the universe. They looked around all of heaven and all of earth and under the earth. And they found no one uniquely qualified to take the scroll. And therefore, without that uniquely qualified individual, all of creation was damned and doomed. And John's only response was to weep. Here's how you interpret that. Without the hope of Christ, without the hope of Christmas, without the hope of this, this little baby being born into the world and all of the innocence and growing up in all of his perfections and beauty by living perfectly under the law, without Christ himself who would lived on your behalf and went to the cross on your behalf and broke through the grave on your behalf and ascended into heaven on your behalf, without him on your behalf, there is nothing left for you but weeping because there's nothing available for you but loss. And sadness and hopelessness. That's what John experienced. He realized, how is it? How is it that someone's going to take this? How is it that something different is going to happen without God opening up this, this wrath? How is this going to happen? This doesn't sound like your normal cheery, happy Christmas sermon, and I'm sorry. But in order to really gain a picture of what happened at, the, at, at Advent, you have to realize the ultimate end of why he came. And John wept. Bitterly, because there was no hope. And for some of you, you're weeping bitterly. You were trying to face this world on your own. You were trying to look for someone else. Maybe it's the person in the mirror, but you were trying to look for someone else to determine your future, to take care of your guilt, to deal with your shame, to deal with your life. And at the end of the day, what you find at the end of that day, at night when you go to sleep and those last thoughts in your head is loss and tears and hopelessness. I want to offer to you something different, just what they offered to John there in the throne room. They didn't say, yeah, you're right, John. It's just sad. It's just sad. They basically said, now look again. John, it's not the whole story. Look again at the throne. And what you see at the throne is this, that Jesus is utterly necessary for each and every one of us. For he alone is worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Father. And John looks up and he says, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, 
This is verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. John looked up and he saw a lion who had lamb-like qualities. And he saw a lamb who had lion-like qualities. He saw something that had never been seen before. He saw something that brings together characteristics and qualities that cannot be found in any other creature in all of the world and in all of history. He saw something there so uniquely qualified to take the scroll from the hand of the Father, so uniquely qualified that it brought him hope and it led him to worship with the rest of them and say, worthy is he. Because what he saw was Christ. And in Christ he saw a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers. A lion who conquered all in incredible power. But a lion who was like a slain lamb. And for one who was used to going to temple and Passover and seeing how a lamb was slain, he would have seen this lion With a throat slit, maybe. A lion bearing marks of its sacrifice. He said, this is no normal lion. This is a lion that conquered in a different way. And then at the same time, he saw a lamb not slumped over on the throne or next to the throne, but standing A lamb, that thing of meekness and gentleness, standing next to the throne with seven horns and seven eyes, which picture of perfection as given throughout Revelation and in Deuteronomy and other places in the Bible, of strength and of power. So all of a sudden there was this lamb which was known as weak and sacrificial, was standing in a way with strength and with victory and with ultimate power. And he looked and he realized at that moment, it's Christ. Christ who wins the victory in a different way. Christ who won your victory by dying on your behalf. But yet he still won it. Christ who went through death. He went to Satan and he said, I have conquered you. I have destroyed you now. For all those who believe in me, they don't have to be afraid of you anymore. They don't have to experience you ever again in this life. They will only have the good and the pleasant knowledge of knowing that I, the lion and the lamb, uniquely brought together in characteristics found no place else. I come and I do it on your behalf. I guess what I want you to see today is the incredible uniqueness of the Savior that you seek and need. Because your tendency in mind is this. It's to create a Savior who looks an awful lot like you. And who looks an awful lot like our culture's Saviors. Big and strong. I mean, think about Gladiator. He didn't come and say, I'm going to save by being weak. Took off his helmet. And he declared his name. But you knew even at that point. Caesar could have killed him. He's not like any other 
Savior that we understand. He comes in, this Christ, and he blows it away because he says, you are so uniquely in need of me to come and take the Father's scroll. And what he does for us, what he does for you, is he says this about the scroll. He said, yes, my Father is going to have to pour out his wrath and judgment. Yes, he's going to have to do that. Because he says that no one can stand in opposition against him. He says, but if you believe in me, you don't have to have any of that. I took all of that on your behalf. He said, there's a future that maybe you don't fully understand or know. And there are things uh, that are devastating. And we look around and we don't fully understand them in the world. But he says this, if you trust in me, I promise you this. You may not fully understand why I do all the things that I do. But you can trust me. And know that I have your best in mind. And my father's name in mind. And you can trust me. For I'm good and I'm powerful. That I'm tender and I'm strong. That I am the one who comes near to the brokenhearted. How many of you have wrestled maybe this week with something that breaks your heart? Anybody? One or two of you. And you look in the world. What kind of savior do you need? You need one who can come right alongside and be incredibly tender to you. And can say to you, I was talking in the death this week in our community of a beautiful little eight-month-old girl. What do her parents need to hear? They need to have a Savior who comes near and weeps with them over death. Who says, I hate death too. I hate death too. And speaks tender words to a broken and grieving heart. But then also says, but... I am powerful enough to defeat death on your behalf. That I will weep with you, but my tears are different because my tears let you know this. These scars, they mean that I beat death. That I am all powerful and I am all confident that I won the day. Isn't that the kind of savior that you need? The one who comes tenderly near to you? Who is the lamb who was slain? but who is the conqueror of all things, who holds within his hand all power and might. On the flip side, what if he came in all power and might? Again, my father had a big voice. And I remember one time heading down Oak Hills Drive in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, on my brand new red bicycle with the big banana seat and the little tassels flying out on the sides. It was the coolest bike. It had the little clicker in it, so you heard me coming from a mile away. And I was cruising down the bike, and guess what happens when that front wheel starts getting a little bit like this? Somebody's going down. And I went down. And I'm bloodied from head to toe, and I'm crawling back up to my house, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going to my father, and he says, What happened, boy? He had a big voice. He was a big, strong man. I didn't need his strength per se at that time. I didn't need the booming part of his strength. What I needed was what he did next. Because he sat down with me. And he was tender. I needed to hear both together. And just in the right mix. Jesus changes everything. And the invitation for you today is to come and to get to know all of him. His strength and his tenderness. His power as the lion and his gentleness as the lamb.
For it's in that unique qualities brought together in him that he is worthy of all of our praise. So when you sing your songs at Christmas, when you sing your hymns of faith, when you do all of those things, do them in the full knowledge of who you celebrate. The one who was worthy to take from his father a scroll. And guess what's written in that scroll for you who believe in him? Heaven, peace on earth, with men and women with whom God is pleased, upon whom, as we said last week, upon whom God's favor rests, looking at a, at a future and a hope and a confidence. I don't want you to face a future without that. And so our invitation for you today is this, come and meet the lamb who is a lion and the lion who is a lamb. Come and meet Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to sing. We want to have something to sing about. For this world is so filled with disappointment. This world is so filled with dashed hopes and dreams that we run after a hero with all of his or her strength and we realize that in the end they fail us. We are drawn to those who are tender within our society We speak gently, a voice of comfort, but at the end, they disappoint us. But there's one who speaks with incredible gentleness and boldness and power who will never disappoint. And so I pray today that we would see Christ seated on the throne and that we would give our very lives to him. And we would hear the words from Revelation that said, and they will make war upon the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome, for He has overcome. And we worship Him today. To Christ be the glory for this grace that we have received. Amen.